0: Today's scripture comes from Luke 13, 1 through 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who takes care of the the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig it around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The word of the Lord.
1: So if you've been uh, with us, you know that we have been, um, we've been in a series um, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, we've been doing that by going through the Gospel of Luke and highlighting uh, different pieces about his life and ministry. And the goal really has been for us to not just learn more about Jesus, uh, but ultimately it's been, uh, the goal has been to get to know him better. Uh, We've been trusting that the Spirit of God would help us do that as we take a look at various aspects of Jesus' life. And today, we're going to jump right into this because what we're going to see and what we're going to look at today is one of the most central teachings of Jesus, that central teaching being that of repentance. Now, I know that this word repentance, um, it could drum up some fears of what's going to happen for the next 25 minutes, uh, what could be said. Um, And maybe for some, it might be a little disorienting and a little disconcerting. uh, But I do hope that by the end, uh, we don't see repentance as something to fear, but rather we see repentance uh, as part of the great hope and joy that we experience in the person and work of Jesus. And so, with that said, let's jump right in and look at three things in particular, three different angles to repentance. Let's understand the nature of repentance, uh, the goal of repentance, and then finally the beauty in repentance. All right, so first, the nature of repentance. So in the Bible, there are various nuances to how the word uh, repent is used. Uh, In our usual, you know, um, use of the word, we tend to use it as a way of saying that we feel sorry or that we feel bad for something that we've done. We have some sense of regret. Um, It sometimes gets defined as being something that we we turn away from wrongdoing, and as we turn away from wrongdoing, we turn toward God. Um, That definition is certainly true in some sense. However, a more precise biblical way of understanding the biblical word repentance is not so much to feel bad about something or even to apologize for something, but rather the definition of repentance is more about changing one's mind to change one's mind about something. It is to cease thinking one way and instead to think another way. And in relation to God, it's to change the way that we think about him. Now, I realize uh, that for many, uh, repentance is um, kind of a dirty word, particularly in our culture for a variety of reasons. And the reason that's usually the case is because often, Uh, we tend to reject the idea of even needing to repent, and that usually happens in one of two ways. There's usually two ways that people reject the concept. The first way that people often reject the concept is to just reject the premise altogether. Uh, So by its nature... Repentance uh, is associated, of course, with sin and with uh, this belief in unworthiness, that there's this requirement of admitting wrongdoing or that there's this commitment to change how I live my life, uh, none of which sounds pleasant, especially in a culture uh, where the greatest sin is really not being true to myself and my desires. Uh, Within our cultural landscape, that might be the worst thing that one could do, which is not be true to themselves. Um, and we, we know this to be true. I mean, we've seen this for decades now, this being the overall idea uh, behind uh, some kind of internal wrong that I may have. Decades ago, for example, uh, you, of course, you have guys like Frank Sinatra who were popularizing this idea in pop culture, of course, with his, one of his most famous songs, My Way. All right. one of the verses in that song says this, regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention, I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way, right? In other words, sure, I've had some regrets, but the most important thing was that I did what I wanted to do. And of course, in more contemporary pop culture, we have the deeply theological statement from Frozen, the song Let It Go, no rights, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Right? In this kind of cultural framework, repentance makes no sense. I mean, at best, I'll admit some regrets. But the real tragedy would be for me to not live however I want to live, because in the end. I'm the master of my own destiny, I am the arbiter of what is right and wrong for my life, and anyone who tells me otherwise is bigoted or ignorant or regressive. And so the, the one way that we reject repentance is just to reject the whole premise of needing to. But the other way that we can reject repentance is also maybe accepting the premise of repentance but refusing to believe that it's something that I need to do. So, in other words, I might accept it as a concept, but I reject that I have anything to repent of. Now, as we briefly mentioned last week, even if we believe that there is a need for some people to repent, we mostly assume that repentance is good for other people and not for ourselves because we, when we compare ourselves to others, do assume ourselves to be better than them. And so, yes, repentance is good for them, but maybe not so much for me. As an example of this, uh, not long ago, just very recently, uh, President Trump was asked about repentance as it's the central, one of the central themes of the Christianity that he claims. I promise this is not a political statement, but it just articulated so perfectly what I am trying to say. When he was asked about repentance, his response was to say, I think repenting is terrific, but why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I am not making mistakes? I work hard. I'm an honorable person. In other words, sure, repentance is cool for other people, but I don't need it. But from both vantage points, both reject the idea that there's anything wrong with me, and both affirm that I deserve what I want and I should have it on my own terms. And what we see here in Luke 13, in some sense, Jesus addressing that ideology Because in some sense, that's what's happening here in our passage. What we see in Luke 13 is we see a group of people who are scoffing at the idea of needing to repent. Because in their minds, others were in more need of it than they were. And Jesus' response, I think, not only uh, challenges their assumptions about repentance, but it also challenges ours. Because what Jesus does here, and what we're going to see, is that Jesus challenges the idea that we deserve the life that we want or the belief that we are even in control of the life that we live. Let me show you what I mean. And so in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is addressing two tragedies, uh, neither of which we really have much information on. Uh, So the first one there is there were some Galileans that were killed by Pilate. Uh, The governor, while they were offering sacrifices, again, we don't know what exactly was taking place. All we know is that there were some people killed by the state. And then the second thing that happens is apparently there were 18 innocent bystanders who were killed when a tower fell on them. It was some kind of accident. And in each instance, after describing the tragedy, Jesus makes a really interesting statement. After speaking about the Galileans being killed by Pilate, Jesus says... Do you think they were worse sinners than you? No, they weren't. So repent. And then secondly, after uh, addressing those that were killed by this accident, he says, you think those killed were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, they weren't. So repent. What is he doing? Well, Jesus is talking to people who had embedded in their culture the belief that those killed by Pilate and by the tower died as a result of God's anger. And those who lived must have pleased God. And so what we have here is Jesus confronting that idea by saying the reason they died had nothing to do with their wickedness, and you surviving those events has nothing to do with your righteousness. Anyone could be killed, and it's by God's grace alone that you are alive, so don't assume that to be a sign that there's favor, that you have favor with God or that you've made the right decisions in your life. And this is where I think Jesus' words slice through modern notions of repentance. Because if we think that we are the master of our destiny, that needs to change or we will perish. If we think others should repent but we don't have to, That needs to change, or we will perish. We do not deserve what we have, or what we aspire to have. The only reason we have it is because God has been, for whatever reason, gracious to us. And in the end, if repentance is to change one's mind, as we've said, then Jesus is saying, whatever your assumptions are, they likely need to change, or you will perish. Now. Why do I emphasize this idea of changing our minds? Because here's why it's important to consider it from that that vantage point. We could consider today all of the different ways that we need to rethink what we believe. And typically, if we were to approach repentance, I could just rattle off a whole bunch of different things that you and I are doing wrong that we need to then repent for. You know, I could tell us that we need to rethink how we've thought about money or sex or power, and repent. I could address the ways that maybe we've been arrogant or the ways that we've mistreated people and as a result rethink that and repent. I could address the apathy or the flippancy with which we treat people that are different than ourselves, and I could call us all to repentance and to change our minds. We could address very specific things in which we need to change and to repent of. However, none of that matters if we have not first and foremost repented or changed our minds about God himself. Because repentance is first and foremost changing our minds about who is master over our lives. It's first and foremost us Changing our minds about who has final say over what is right and wrong, who is in control of all things. It's changing our minds, believing that God is trustworthy and gracious and merciful and kind, that he's a loving father and a creator who knows what is best and intended for you as his creation and as a result ought to be obeyed. That is repentance, changing our minds about who God is. I mean, repentance is saying, God... You are the creator and sustainer of life, including myself. God, you are ruler and you reign over all things, including me. God, you have purposes and plans and intentions for your creation, including me. And there are rights, there are wrongs, there are rules for me, and in you and only you, I'm free. See, true repentance is first and foremost changing our minds about him. And the nature of repentance is to not start by being told the specific things that we are doing wrong. The nature of repentance is thinking differently about God. But if that's the nature of repentance, then what would make someone want to repent? Because given everything I just said, it seems a lot easier, to, or at least culturally more appropriate, to just be free of such beliefs or such burdens. Well, that brings us to the goal of Repentance. Uh, Usually, I think it's fair to say that the reason why we don't want to repent uh, is because we don't know that we can actually trust what God says is actually true, right? So I prefer to be the master of my own destiny because I do fear that if I give control of my life to him, he will not put my happiness or my pleasure or my fulfillment or interest first. And to be fair, to submit ourselves to someone, especially someone we don't trust, does feel a lot like bondage, doesn't it? I mean, to be fair, I understand that instinct because giving control of my life to someone other than myself, it can and has led to bondage. Subjecting myself to another person's standard can lead to oppression. Admitting something is wrong with me can leave me feeling lost and vulnerable. But here's where understanding the goal of repentance is so important. Because if we see repentance... If repentance is changing our minds about God himself, then the assumptions that we've had about him must change in order to submit to him as God. And what I mean by that is this. So on the one hand, if you see God as a tyrant who wants control, repentance is going to be changing your mind, not to see him as a tyrant, but now to see the ways that he wants you to, to flourish, to flourish in ways that you cannot fathom. If, on the other hand, you see God as being passive or permissive, unconcerned about your life, then repentance is changing your mind by seeing him as a committed and active and present father who, again, wants you to flourish in ways that you cannot fathom and a God who also requires things of you. And according to Jesus, the alternative to this is to perish but if that's the case, if we don't repent, we perish. Then what that means is that to repent means that we will experience life, and that's the goal. To not perish is to or to not repent is to perish. To repent is to experience life. The goal is to change our minds about God in order that, in our submission to Him, we might discover life for which we have no categories until we repent. The goal of repentance is not for you to feel bad about things you've done. It's not about self-flagellation. It's not about submitting uh, and as a result having to give up all of your dreams and your desires. The goal is to experience true life. Of course, then, the question comes up, what is true life? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in part, here in Luke 13, we see what it is not. True life is obviously not just living, because Jesus has said to his uh, his listeners, "You think you have it good because you weren't killed by Pilate or crushed by the tower, but just because you're living does not mean you have life. And if you don't repent, you'll perish. Why? Here's what's so important about understanding." true life, is that true life is realizing without God's intervention, left to our own devices, we are bound to a path of destruction. No matter how advanced we think we might get, we will never shake ourselves from that bondage unless God steps in to give us true life, true life that comes through repentance. And this is where understanding the Bible's doctrine of sin is so important. Understanding that we are bound to sin with no hope of breaking free is fundamental to understanding the true life that Jesus is describing in Luke 13. Because it's the belief that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. And it's a problem that will lead us to death. Now, I I should say that I'm aware of the fact that some assumptions... Are often viewed the assumptions of ourselves being broken and sinful, uh, again, they're they tend to be viewed as regressive and old-fashioned. You know, we've assumed ourselves to be so evolved or so righteous or so advanced in our thinking. We assume that the great accomplishments of humanity prove the Bible's doctrine of sin to be in some ways invalid. And we often as a culture believe that Again, following our own own hearts is what breaks us free from such old-fashioned beliefs about sin, but I don't think that that actually holds up because time and time again, if we are honest, the words of Jeremiah 17, which says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, those words time and time again have proven themselves to be true regardless of what advances we think we've made as a culture or as a society. Let me give you some examples of what I mean that I think prove the doctrine of sin and why we are bound to it on a path of destruction. You know, in our modern, advanced times, we've assumed ourselves to be past some of the greatest depravities of humanity. But an honest look shows that that's not the the case. There's still deep, deep depravities that are within us. I mean, the 20th century alone... What could be viewed as the most civilized, enlightened time of all of human history, in the first world, civilized world, we have seen more bloodshed as a result of wars and genocide than any other time in all of human history. And it was genocide that occurred in one of the most advanced and seemingly enlightened places on earth, 20th century Europe. There's still something deeply depraved in us. I mean, even right now in our own nation, our current times, for all our advances and all our enlightenment, we still cannot figure out how to categorically reject racism and its consequences. We are still filling our jails with the poor and people of color while corporations are literally profiting off of jam-packed prisons. There's something still deeply depraved in us. For all our advances and enlightenment, we still have a lack of comprehensive gun control, a lack of which fuels deaths by the thousands every year. There's still something deeply depraved in us. For all our advances and enlightenment, sex slavery is pervasive in this country and around the world. And I bring this up because next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday, and we, every year, see a huge spike in human trafficking as a result. And with sex slavery, there is also this complete apathy... Toward controllable reasons for its strength, like the pervasiveness of pornography, there's still something deeply depraved in us. For all our advances and enlightenment, even needed movements like the Me Too movement have shown that even in the most progressive pockets of society, with people who claimed to be champions of the dignity of all people, were also letting sexual predators run rampant for years, never stepping in for fear of their own careers, being harmed, leaving victims to suffer. There's still something deeply depraved in us. For all our advances in enlightenment, we still do not know how to honor the dignity of life at all stages of life. From womb to tomb, there is something deeply depraved still within us. And the doctrine of sin... For some, it might seem regressive and old-fashioned, but the doctrine of sin has consistently told us why. Even our, our, in our advanced world, there's still something so broken in us. And it all comes back to a rejection of God as God in favor of remaining our own God, all of which leads to death. Unless we change our minds through repentance, we will perish because we have rejected the true life which comes as a result. Now, whether uh, you buy into this need for repentance or not, I do think it's at least worth noting and considering. Just practical questions for all of us here. What are the ways or the areas of our life in which we don't trust God? What are the ways in which we desire to remain our own God in our life. I mean, it, to be quite honest, we've all got, we should all have answers to those questions. All of us. Have ways in which we don't trust God, ways in which we desire to be the God of our own life in particular areas of our life. There are things that we should all think of. And I want you to think on those things, to remember those things, because what we could do right now is I could say, stop it. Whatever you're thinking of, repent of those things. But to do that is to not be true to the heart of man. Because right now there might be a desire to change in those ways, but it'll come back. The temptation to turn from God again will return to us. And the only way that true repentance sticks is not just being told to repent, but it's also seeing the beauty in repentance it's the only thing that really transforms our hearts and our minds to be able to repent well. At the end of this passage, the second half of the passage, Jesus gives us two, two stories. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jesus gives us a story, a parable about a fig tree. Uh, the story essentially goes like this that there's a man who owns a fig tree and is frustrated that it's not bearing fruit. Uh, And as a result, he tells the caretaker to cut it down because it's taking up space and it's taking up good soil. And the caretaker, when hearing this, responds, no, no, give give it one more year. I will fertilize it. I'll take extra care of the tree. And then if nothing happens after that year, then we'll cut it down. Now, given the context of all we've just said, everything that Jesus is talking about thus far, what is it that Jesus is saying? Well, the context is repentance. See, repentance is the fruit on this tree. And it proves that true life exists in this tree. And the caretaker is saying, I realize that right now, true life is not evident. But I will do all that is necessary to ensure that fruit comes. That fruit comes from that tree. If it's not obvious to you, we are the tree. Fruit is our repentance. And Jesus here is the one standing in the gap to ensure that the tree is not destroyed. In other words, Jesus is the one committing himself to bring you to repentance that you might experience true life. Now you'll remember, if you've been with us up until this point, what we've seen now in Jesus's ministry, in, 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 the, in the narrative of the gospel of Luke, is that at this point, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, Luke says over and over again, meaning that Jesus has fixed his eyes on the cross, his coming death. And the reason that this matters is because Jesus knows what it's going to take to bring life to this tree he knows that in order to bring life to the tree, he's going to have to take on death. And in some sense, I think it could, I don't want to stretch this analogy too much, but in some sense, it does seem as though Jesus is saying that He's going to be the fertilizer for this tree, that the death that comes is going to bring nutrients to the ground, that repentance might now come, fruits might come from this tree. His death on the cross is what gives this tree life. And the reason why I think it's appropriate to put it that way is because of uh, passages like Romans 6 that say that we, therefore, have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life, that the death of Jesus is directly connected to our life. This true life. The result of Jesus' death and subsequent victory over death in his resurrection results in life for us. The beauty of repentance is that in repentance, we see Jesus in pursuit of us. The beauty of repentance is God's commitment to breaking that bondage of sin that's leading us to death. The beauty of repentance is what makes us change our minds about repentance. Because now we see repentance not as some uh, obligation, something that we are uh, told that we have to do, but now we see repentance as being close and near and rescued by our Savior. And now, as I've said, we often don't repent because we do not believe that submission to God is best In some ways, we just don't trust that God is trustworthy. But when we see Jesus, the one in pursuit of us, the one willing to lay down his life for us in order that we might experience life, this is when repentance becomes beautiful because it's in Jesus that God has proven himself trustworthy. For in his son, he lays down his life. And when we see repentance this way, it can easily become a daily exercise for all of us. You know, it's self-delusion that says, I have nothing to repent of. Because daily, we can ask God to show how we are thinking about him wrongly, and every day he can show us something. And it becomes a joy when we get to see God in new ways as a result of what Jesus has done for us. It's turning from death to life every day, daily. God, change my mind for today. Renew my mind again for today. Remind me of the life and the freedom that you give in Jesus. Remind it to me again today. Final thing I'll say, I'm going to end with this, is I I can't move on without at least pointing out the end of verse 9. The end of verse 9 says that if it does not bear fruit, cut it down. You know, we've, we are called toward repentance and God is gracious and he is patient and he gives that time for us to bear fruit. But that time does end. Do not wait. See the work of Jesus for you now that God is calling you, that he is in pursuit of you now and repent and change your mind about him. Experience life for he does not wish any to perish The famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but experience everlasting life. Cling to that hope today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience, for your kindness, for your willingness to do all that was necessary in order for us to experience true life, new life. We thank you for the work of your son, and we thank you for the ways that you have shown to us how we have not trusted you, how we've needed our minds changed about you. This is a grace and a mercy. And so today, Lord, if there are ways that we are not thinking of you as we should, would you by your Spirit, make them plain to us. And may we come in true repentance every day, recognizing that every day there are new ways for us to change our thinking. We trust your word when you tell us that uh, your mercies are new every morning. May those mercies reveal to us how we might change, that we might see you anew every day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.